0: Well, good morning, Christ Community Church. Oh, it's so good to see you guys this morning. Man, I love a packed house, even though this is kind of not packed, but it's great to see you all. If you have a Bible, please open up with me to Jeremiah 29. We are reading from Jeremiah 29 verses 9, sorry, verses 11 through 13. By the way, for those who don't know me, my name is Sebastian. Uh, I'm the youth director here, and I'm very happy you're all here. Jeremiah 29 says this, For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me, with all your heart. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you haven't left us here without guidance or direction. Thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, thank you that your word says that everything that pertains to life and godliness, you've revealed it to us already. God, I pray that we would live as people who have your word, who have that hope and that future Maybe not in this world's prosperity, but in eternity with you. God, I pray that as we hear your word today, we are, our eyes would be open, our ears would be open, our hearts would be softened, and that we would humbly receive your word this morning. God, may, may we be doers of your word and not hearers who deceive ourselves. God, we thank you for your word. May we listen this morning. It's in your name that
1: we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Sebastian. I hope you had a good holiday weekend, did you? With whoever you were allowed to get together with. Boy, we, we did, uh, just our immediate family. We just had such a good time uh, together. And, uh, and I hope your time with family was also a blessing. We're starting a new series today called Resilient, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Becoming Unshakable. And there's so many forces in our culture today that want to shake us to our core. And it feels like they have been. And a lot of times the fountainhead, the wellspring of that comes from a secularist, naturalist, or an atheist worldview. And so this first installment of this message is I'm really going to be addressing that worldview. And I'm going to not so much unpack every single thing about it. I'm gonna talk about the three big things they've gotten wrong. And then I'm going to give you a prescription, six things that you can do with your kids and your teenagers and your young adults and in your own life to be a resilient disciple in headwinds, strong headwinds that are coming in our culture. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, A a few years ago, New York Times writer Philip Blonde published an article on the problem with secularism. And what was interesting about this is that he was critiquing it from a religious perspective. But what he was also critiquing was what he viewed to be fundamentalist religion was equally a problem. And here's the the opening paragraph of his article. He says, geopolitically, the resurgence of religion is dangerous and spreading. Oh, no. He says, from Islamic fundamentalism, okay, they have a, that's, that's fair. They have a murder problem. American evangelicalism, that's not fair. We don't have a murder problem. And Hindu nationalism. He says each creed demands total conformity and absolute submission to their own particular variant of God's revelation. So there's all kinds of things going wrong in that, that paragraph. Did you spot them? Well, first of all, he foolishly collapses American evangelicalism into Islamic fundamentalism. Are you kidding me? When is the last time you saw a bunch of evangelicals blow up a bus full of innocent people? Not the same thing. This is just not the same thing. He also falsely assumes that because some religious systems who claim absolute truth are wrong, then they all must be wrong. But what if those relig- one of those religions is right? What if it's us? And so, this critique can and should also be leveled at fundamentalist secularism. What is that? Put this definition up on the screen. Secularism is a social philosophy that seeks to evict God, all forms of worship, faith, and religious doctrine from the public square. As secularists derive their tenets from naturalistic or atheistic assumptions about the nature of the, the external world. Naturalism is the belief that there is nothing beyond the natural world. In other words, there is no God, there are no people, there are no souls, there's no real you in there, you're just, a, you're just matter in motion. As Tolstoy once wrote, men are but particles in progress. We are chemicals firing in a body, giving us the illusion of a conscious self-awareness, a rational thought, morality, and meaning. But the question becomes, who is being hoodwinked here? To have an illusion, you have to have a magician and an audience. Who's the audience? Who's being fooled? There's no real person in there. And Western culture has been in an existential crisis for quite some time. We've seen the rise of secularist, atheistic philosophy. Absolutely, we have seen that. But we've also seen the rise of religious faith. In particular, the Christian faith. We have seen more people practicing spirituality across the world stage than ever before. Christianity is exploding across the globe. So how can these two things be true? It reminds me of Romans 5.20 where Paul says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And the tide of history and the story of history as sin was increasing leading to the fulcrum of history, the cross of Jesus, God brought a standard, grace, to meet it. And this is what we pray for our culture. This is what we pray for our people. For this nation, for our world, that as sin increases, God will raise a standard of grace to meet it. We are in a struggle for the soul of our civilization. We're in a struggle for the souls of our children and our teenagers. And it's a battle for the story that will answer the big questions of culture. But before we get to those questions and what the right answer is to those questions, what is culture? What is that? Culture is the effort to provide a coherent and unified set of answers to the big questions of life expressed in a society's shared narrative, meaning, moral values, purposes, and customs. Again, culture is the effort to provide a coherent and intelligible and unified narrative that answered the big questions. What are the big questions? Where did we come from? What is the origin of the world? Why are human beings on this planet? What is the right value system that we should live by in society? Now, the old narrative, to be sure, was one of religious, Was a religious one. To be sure, historian Mark Knowles states that the King James Bible provided a conceptual canopy for the entirety of Western civilization. It was a faith in history story that began to be challenged through the advent of the Rousseau-Dewey educational revolution, which dehumanized the student And and of course, made famous, come to a head in the 1925 Scopes Trial. And ever since then, we have been engaged in an escalating conflict. But here's the secret. The secret is that you and I have to fight on three fronts. We have to engage this battle for our culture, for our kids, for the world, on three fronts. And the first one is spiritually. Spiritually. We have a spiritual mandate to make disciples of the nations. God has sent us into the world compelled by his love, not anger for the world, his love for the world to save them. Because without him and without his gospel and his truth, people are lost and they are without hope and without God in the world. And so you and I have a spiritual mandate and that's primarily where the church engages. We also have a philosophical mandate. We have a philosophical mandate. God expects us to make a reasoned, rational, well-reasoned case for the Christian worldview. When Jesus wanted the Jews to believe what he was saying about himself, he said, listen, if you don't believe what I say, just look at the miracle. Look at the evidence. At least believe what your eyes are seeing. And you and I are to present arguments and evidence for the Christian faith to the world. We need to be prepared to do that. Peter told us to be prepared to give an answer. And we also are fighting internally. Save our kids. We're in danger of losing the next generation. I want to put this statistic up. You know, 64% of all young adults who were raised in a Christian home have dropped out of church and out of their faith. That's a staggering number of people from this generation who are dropping out of the church. That's, that says nothing about the people who never went to church in the first place. Imagine a generation of people who are lost without God and without hope in the world. And you and I have an opportunity to make a difference, one life, one person, one heart at a time. So while we are watching a generation of people whose faith has been stolen from them, and in its place they have been given digital, what David Kinneman calls digital Babylon to keep them mentally, spiritually, socially sedated. The tenets of this atheist secularism has produced a culture with a shaky, weak identity, a pervasive uncertainty in crisis, no connection to their past and no hope for the future, no plan. So I want to give you six keys today that will plant you like a a tree by streams of living water to give you resiliency in the coming days, come what may. The key here is Isaiah 28, 16, which says, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a precious stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, the one who believes will be unshakable. Do you feel unshakable? Do you want to? This is the key, to build your life and your family on the foundation stone of Christ. Now, Christ quoted this passage self-referentially. He quoted it about himself. Paul and Peter unambiguously clearly quote this passage about Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the sure foundation. But in the context of Isaiah chapter 28, this is God's response to the people of salvation instead of his wrath. What they say is, what the people say is, oh, we we have formed a group. And our group is a group of liars And we cannot be shaken. We have a cabal of liars, and no one can shake us. And God's response to that, oh, I'll shake you. (laughs) I'll come down there and shake you. But look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And the one who believes will be unshakable on the day when I come to shake you down to your foundations, to your core in judgment. And so this is the key. The key is to be built on Jesus. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.7 tells us, For God has not given us a spirit of fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, timidity, or cowardice, but of power and of love and of a self-disciplined mind. This encapsulates the fuel that the Christian runs on God's power and his love for others and his love for outsiders and God's and his power in a self-disciplined mind. So let me just take a few minutes to make a case against the atheist, secularist worldview and why it's failing, why I believe it's failing our nation and why I think that's self-evident. First of all, secularism can't explain our origins. Can't explain our origins. What does? What story would? Yeah, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the entire spectrum of creation. God is responsible for it. And God is responsible for you. God created you. God created the human race. And the problem is that secularism doesn't have any answer for this. It gives people really essentially no answer. It can't explain our origins. And when you take a person's origin story away from him, you know what you take away from him? His purpose her his or her purpose his or her meaning and if you don't have meaning and you don't have purpose then you don't know why you're here this story is so important and the philosophical naturalist and the secularist has taken this generation's story away from them when you and i are not identified as having been created by god we've already got problems If you're a cosmic mishap, then your life does not have any objective meaning. And by objective, we mean outside of the system. You and I live in the closed system, and this meaning comes from outside of the box, from outside of the system. It's objectively given or bestowed upon you. And because God has created us and told us what our purpose is, we have purpose and we have meaning. I contrast God is the best explanation for our existence. God is the best explanation for our existence. God's existence best explains why the universe is apparently designed and so well-ordered and thus discoverable, which makes science possible. <laughs> I mean, this is why this story about God creating the world is so important. God's existence best explains why human beings appear to have been crowned with rational minds, a religious instinct, and yet they are so prone to calamitous folly. It explains in self-destruction. Have you noticed? And, and this explains best why you and our message is very simply this. There is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who saves. There is a savior. There is a hope in this world and hope beyond this life. And this is our message in response. What's... Why is it failing our nation? Number two, secularism can't supply objective values and duties or virtues. Is it moral to create a cure for a virus? Is that moral? Well, if it's safe, sure. Why wouldn't it be? Don't you want to save lives? Why would you want to? Because lives are precious. Because every life is precious in God's sight. We all want to save lives, don't we? Well, of course. Well, that, that view of a human being who's been invested with purpose and meaning, that comes from the Christian worldview. That's a Christian value. That's a Christian virtue. So we apprehend a realm of moral obligations and duties to one another that are objective. Again, independent. They are independent of our knowledge or independent of our will or independent of whether or not we approve of them. They're objective out there side of the system imposed or invested in us if you were hitler you ever do this game okay yeah if you were hitler you lived in the 1930s and you were the leader of the nazi party you would have probably thought that it was morally praiseworthy to exterminate a group of people an ethnicity but the rest of the world said time out that's not moral that's not moral and it's self-evidently immoral. It's self-evidently evil. There are things that are just right and things that are just wrong. There are things that are wicked and there are things that are good. And it doesn't matter what time or what culture you live in, they are transcultural. And so what has flowered from this secularist worldview which strips a person of their objective meaning and purpose, objective moral values and duties toward one another, is a weird post-secularist and post-modern world where meaning itself is questioned, morality is questioned. Well, of course, if there's nothing external to us telling us what things mean, if there's no ultimate anchor for moral values and duties, well, of course, you're going to redefine fundamental and foundational things like the nature of a man and a woman or the nature of society, What? Constitutes a, a flourishing society, a blessed society. You will redefine those things fundamentally. You will create your own morality. This is what the postmodernist and now the post-postmodernist does. Because there is no objective system that is being imposed upon us or being externally given to us. And so this gobbledygook has flowered out of the seabed of modernity in the atheist secularist story. And God's existence and the Judeo-Christian faith provide a better story. And our story is that there is a God in heaven, there is a savior, there is a hope for this world and a hope beyond this life. Why it's failing our nation. Number three, naturalism leads to nihilism. Naturalism leads to nihilism. What is nihilism? It It is a view of the world where nothing has any meaning, nothing has any purpose. There is no objective truth, and even if there were, you couldn't know it. You wonder where they get that from. Well, they get that out of the secularists. Now, this is a weird thing because modern secularists and people of the Christian faith are both concerned about this generation, this generation of kids and young adults, because nihilism and this hopeless outlook on life Is on the rise and I want to say to our secularist friends it's your fault it's not ours because our worldview supplies them the purpose and the meaning that God intended for them it gives them the story that makes sense of their life and it shows them the redemptive path back to God if you tell a person that he is nothing but matter in motion nothing but particles as Leo Tolstoy said particles in progress then of course he's going to be hopeless, of course he's going to be depressed, of course suicides are going to be off the chart, of course, because you've told him he is nothing but a material thing. The secularist worldview has weakened our nation and left it shaken and unstable, and when you take away a person's meaning, purpose, and value system, when you take away the hope of God in Christ, you leave society with super. Answers to really important, profound questions. By contrast, the Christian faith does not offer thin answers to thick questions. We have a thick worldview. It's a thick worldview. So here's how to be resilient in the world six tips. Here we go. Number one resilient disciple forms a strong identity through a personal relationship with Jesus, forms a strong identity through a personal relationship with Jesus. is the best thing, the best gift you can give your kids. Raise them in the faith. Raise them in the gospel. Uh, have Pastor Patty come up here and baptize them in the next service. Implore them to escape the coming wrath. Because your little angel, that's where they're headed. <laughs> okay, All humanity is headed for judgment day. And so you and I the best thing the best gift that we can give our children and our grandchildren is to form help them to form a strong identity through a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, here's your homework assignment, read the book of Ephesians. That that is the best most encouraging book. Paul was in a really good mood when he wrote that book. And he must have been, because if you read another book like Galatians, he was so depressed. He was like, oh, you stupid Galatians. But, um, but in Ephesians, he was flying high, man. And he's in such a good mood. And that whole book, just about that whole book, tells us who we are in Christ. It just tells us who we are in Christ. And when your identity is grounded in the Word and grounded in Christ... You have a strong identity. You have a resilient identity. Here's just a little snapshot of Ephesians 2 19 through 22. Look at what he says. He says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, you Gentiles, Christians, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Dig that. You are members of the household of God. You are the children of God, no longer foreigners and strangers. You are fellow citizens in his kingdom, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets' teaching. With Christ Jesus himself, here's that Isaiah 28 passage. Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. Now in him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together, both Jew and Gentile believer, and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So you're a temple. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling, a tabernacle in which God lives by his spirit. What a privileged position. Do you know this is true about you? Do you know the many things that the Bible teaches about your identity in Christ? And the first key, the first key to resiliency in this increasingly secularist and atheist and postmodern and, and modern world is to ground your life and ground yourself in Christ. The second, uh, secondly, a resilient disciple is vitally connected to Christ's body, the local church, the fellowship of I call them fellow sufferers. Why would I say that? A couple years ago, um, when Carrie was going through cancer treatment, uh, I I have to make a confession to you. I don't even think she knows this. Well, She's finding out today. Uh, And that is that uh, I really didn't want to go sit in there for hours and just watch her take this medicine. Of course, I never complained. I just, you know, suck it up, buttercup, man up and get there and get it done and be there for your wife and go get her lunch if she needs lunch and get her a bottle of water and do whatever it is she needs. And that, so I just, at first, I would just kind of put in my headphones and I'll tell you what I was anticipating, I just thought it was gonna be so depressing to sit at the Teton Cancer Center and to sit there and just be surrounded by death. But it had the opposite effect. Most days, not every day, but most day I was, days I was there, we would run into or hear someone talking who was in way worse situation than we were and they were just plucky (laughs) like I don't know what else to say I mean they were just optimistic they were just facing the headwinds of the terror that was their disease with a great attitude and then you had these people who had recovered from cancer who came back and they were volunteers and they would stop by and just make you feel like a million dollars and I would be like yeah let's go to get some cancer treatment you know I need to feel good today I need some encouragement You know why? It's because you're sitting there with a bunch of people, you're in the same boat. There is something about being in a trench with other people who are dodging the same bullets whizzing by your head that you are. There's a bonding thing that happens there. There's a fellowship of suffering that you enter, and it weirdly, strangely gives you a kind of consolation. It consoles you. And this is why we need to be vitally connected to the body of Christ, vitally connected to the body of Christ, the local church, the fellowship of fellow sufferers. Hebrews ten twenty three through 25 says this, let us hold unswervingly. That means unwaveringly, steadfastly, without moving to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. This is the ground of our hope, his faithfulness, not our faith. And let us consider how we may spur one another. That means to challenge one another, to provoke one another on toward love, the love of grace and the good deeds of grace. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Folks, you need this body. You guys know that you're here. The church needs, you need each other. We need each other. Because there is a commiseration, there is just a strange bond that happens when we gather together and we pray for one another's needs, and we love on each other and we fellowship. A resilient disciple is vitally connected to the body, the gathering. And a resilient disciple is also willingly, not under compulsion, not begrudgingly, submitted to the authority of God, the Bible. Now that sounds nice. But I will tell you, I am better at stating this value than I am at living it. My faith is not nearly as strong as some of you think it is. And I know some of you think that it is because you communicated to me that you think it is. But the truth is, is when I am suffering, I just need one ray of light at a time. That's usually all God gives me. I wish he would give me more. But it's just one ray of light, one more ray of light so I can take the next step. You've been there, you know. And so if sometimes I find myself in a place where I am constantly being tempted to create what I call situational heresies. A situational heresy is just whenever I trust my own word rather than God's word. I mean, I know, this, this is how it happens for me. I don't know how it happens for you. This is how it happens for me. I bet you identify. I, I, so I get a bad attitude about something. And... And immediately, I'm a good Christian. I mean, look, man, I walk with the Lord every single day. I confess my sins as far as I know them every day. I'm in the word. I'm in prayer. I'm your pastor. Uh, so I'm walking with Jesus. And then I wake up with just a horrible attitude. Or something zigs when it should have zagged, and I just look, oh, I'm infuriated. And then there's this other side of my mind, that this, this switch that flips and goes, you know what? You're entitled to that. You're entitled to feel that way. And I'm like, "You know what? Dude, you're right, whoever you are talking to me. <laughs> Left hemisphere, you're correct. Now the Holy Spirit comes along. I, I've hidden thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee, unfortunately. And so then I start getting this neon light, the scripture that kind of <laughs> is in my peripheral vision. I'm like, "Shut up, go away. You know <laughs> And now I have a choice. The road diverges. And I can be a situational heretic where I trust my word over God's word. And I say, you know what? No, no, my flesh is the word of God. My flesh is the authority. Or I can trust the conviction of the Holy Spirit and repent. But a strong disciple, a resilient disciple, an enduring disciple is one who willingly, not under compulsion or begrudgingly, submits to the authority of God, his word. And we learn to submit ourselves to this word. Look at what Paul says, or I'm sorry, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter four, verse 12. Paul didn't write that book. Um, He says, for the word of God is alive and it's active. It's not dead. These are not dead letters. It's not static. He says it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And what does it do? It penetrates to divide the indivisible. The thing you cannot divide, soul and spirit. It's so sharp that it can penetrate and divide Bone and marrow. Joints and marrow. And then here's what it does. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Has anybody ever been exposed to someone who's constantly judging the thoughts and attitudes of your heart? That person is not a fun person to be around, are they? We have a tendency to want to recoil from people like that. If you see that person coming down the hall, you're like, you just turn and walk the other way because you don't want to be judged. But this is one of the main functions of God's word. It pierces the heart. And it is that little flash in the peripheral vision that's trying to get our attention. And it judges us. Not to condemn us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But to bring us to a state of conviction so we can repent and be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so we, be, we become willing participants submitting to the authority of God, which is the Bible. Resilient disciples, number four, are also reflexively discerning in matters of faith and culture. I love this one. Reflexively, instinctively, knee-jerk reaction, discerning in matters of faith and culture. Because they have spent time in the word. Look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. He says, the person, the one who... Who is without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, that is, the truths about the cross. He doesn't th- uh, accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but he considers them foolishness, crazy talk. And he cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Holy Spirit. And the person with the Spirit makes judgments. Now, this word judgments does not mean that he walks around wagging his finger at people saying, you know what's wrong with your life. This just means wise discernments. He makes a wise call about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. But we have the mind of Christ. You see what he's saying here. You see what he's saying? We have the Holy Spirit who knows the mind of God. You and I have the mind of Christ and we are able to make wise judgments, to discern wisely between falsehood and the truth. And so when we hear something that just sounds false about the gospel or sounds false about God, something goes off in us and says, that's not right. Reflexively, we know. The illustration I would give Uh, about this would be a couple of weeks ago, I bought a brand new pair of tap shoes for tap dancing. I know some of y'all are looking at me like, what, say what? (laughs) I used to tap dance when I was a kid. And so I decided, uh, I hate running. Sorry, Mueller's. Um, (laughs) I just do not enjoy running. I do enjoy walking. I do not enjoy running. And I decided I'm not going to run. And I just remember, man, when I was a tap dancer... Uh, (laughs) it is 30 minutes of it is really good exercise i mean there's just muscles in my body that i don't ever exercise that that sort of exercise will do and so i got these things i was like oh super sweet and they're nice ones and so i put them on they fit perfect oh they were so comfy and i walked out into the living room and I'm kind of scuffing along Carrie's uh, brand new floor and a relatively new floor. And I'm like, hey, and she's sitting at the table and my son, Tyler, is sitting on the couch, just kind of sitting there messing around. I'm like, hey, check this out. Blam. And I started laying down some combinations, man. And my thing when I used to tap dance is I was really fast. And all of a sudden, and I was doing it, and like 30 seconds, 45 seconds went by, and I'm just, bop, 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 bop. I'm just turned into Gregory Hines right there. <laughs> I'm not lying, y'all. And my son Tyler looked up at me, and he, hit, hit, he got a grin on his face that went from ear to ear. And the look on his face said, Dad, where did you learn to do that? I was like, Yeah, Dad still got it, doesn't he? And I said, you know how I learned that? Because between the age of 10 and 18, I spent innumerable hours, uncountable hours, practicing the steps and the combinations and all the rudiments. And now, quite literally, 30 years later, without ever having wore a tap shoe, I can put on tap shoes, and those pathways have just been cut into my brain, and my muscles just re- remember the steps, and some of you are looking at me now, like, show us, show us something. And no, we won't be doing that. That's a personal gift the Lord has given me, my personal edification. But the point is, is that if we're going to have a reflexive, knee-jerk facility with the truth, we got to spend time with the truth. We got to practice the truth. We got to get in it. Do you know the gospel? Like, do you know the story of the gospel? I mean like your backhand and your front hand. Do you know the story of the gospel? Do you know the word? Are you biblically literate? You and I have to have a reflexive, discerning instinct on matters of faith and culture, but we can only get that with practice, muscle memory. Fifthly, the resilient disciple persistently self-regulates and delays gratification. How often do you tell yourself no? So Thursday and Friday, I didn't say no very much. I said yes a lot because I love leftovers (laughs) and uh, the best part of Thanksgiving is just leftovers. And uh, I eat less at the table so I can come back in like two hours and eat leftovers (laughs) because that's how much I enjoy leftovers. So I didn't say no a lot. But then Saturday, I was kind of feeling it like I woke up early. I was like, man, today is going to be a day of fasting and prayer in the Lord Jesus. (laughs) And I got up. And I got a big glass of water, and I looked over, and right on the counter was this giant, uneaten pecan pie from Costco. And I was like, no. (laughs) I Just walked back away from it. How often do you tell yourself no? Listen, nothing can ever be accomplished in life unless, at times, you say no to some things. Everything has a price tag, everything has a cost. And some things you say no to, you are saying yes to other better choices. Everything that is worth having is uphill. Everything that is worth having is uphill from here. So it's hard. And here's what Paul says. Paul says this in Titus 2, 11 through 12. I love this passage. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. What does it do? It offers us salvation, full stop. Salvation to all people. That's great news. We believe in the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But look at that next part. What does grace do? It, grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present, present age. You know why we love to talk about salvation by grace? Alone? Through faith alone? It's, because, it's not because it's our pet doctrine. If you thought that, listen, that's not why we talk about it so much. We talk about it because we've experienced it. Because we are the people who are walking around with a heavy load of sin that we could not carry anymore and Christ took that that burden off of us and gave us forgiveness and we have been washed clean through and through. That's why we talk about it so much but here's what Paul wants us to know. Paul reminds us that we are not just saved by grace we are taught by grace. Grace doesn't just save us it teaches us it teaches us to say no. And so persevere So resilient disciples persistently self-regulate and delay their own gratification. They can tell themselves no. Number six, they're unapologetically bringing their faith into the public square. Well, they don't apologize for this. They don't apologize for bringing their faith into a public conversation because they know their mission they know their mission. A resilient person will have an expressed desire to impact the culture with their faith. So, let me give you some, some tips on this just a couple. Seek influence before power. You know, the thing about power is it comes and goes, just like uh, our friend said on the video. It comes and goes. People come and go, God buries them in, the work goes on. And so, of course, it has its place. Seeking power has its place. There are some solutions that really do need a top-down solution. But influence is more of a grassroots. It's ground up. Here's some facts out there at you. Majority of evangelicals want to maintain freedom of religion. The majority of evangelicals, that's 100 million people, the majority of them want to maintain religious freedom in America. Do you? I hope you do. Well, that requires putting some people in office who also feel the same way places of governance legislators judges who also want that freedom to maintain that god-given freedom for us but the majority of evangelicals have not shared their faith in the last 10 years and the majority of evangelicals are dropping out of church this is pre covid we are experiencing in 2020 prior to covid-19 this outbreak the lowest number statistics on church attendance in the last 20 years really in our lifetime so here we have people who are lighting their hair on fire about maintaining their religious freedoms they don't even practice their faith they don't follow jesus because following jesus means you act like jesus and what does jesus do he finds the lost he goes and finds them and he loves them and so we must seek influence before power influence lasts a lot longer When 100 million Christians, when 100 million evangelical Christians are sharing their faith and living according to the gospel, that will change our culture. You won't worry so much about who's in power because you'll have influence. You'll have the influence in the land. And secondly, embrace our countercultural status. So it is true that our culture has turned into digital Babylon. Kinneman was right. And like Daniel, as our friend on the video said, and his compatriots, we must choose to swim upstream. Jesus said in the world, you will have tribulation. Here's the good news. I've overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world, but in this world, we will have tribulation for our testimony. So again, Isaiah twenty eight sixteen, he says, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. You want to be unshakable? Build your life and your family and all that you are on the foundation stone of Jesus the Messiah. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. We're going to prepare for communion. Father, we are so grateful for the freedom that we have to come in this room and preach the word and express our faith. And no man gave us that freedom you did. But we also thank you, God, for the many lives that we're given so that we can have this freedom. And God, we, once again, we just want to lift up our brothers and sisters who are enduring a kind of persecution and heat that has come to their doorstep that for most of us is unimaginable. And we lift them up to you, God. And, and it's our responsibility, Lord, to collectively just come together and pray for them. Pray for deliverance and also patient endurance. And that the gospel will go forth like an unstoppable force. And if you're here this morning and you want to be resilient, you want to make the choice to live resiliently, would you just make it in your heart right now between you and God? God, I choose. I choose to have a resilient outlook on the culture and on life. I choose it. I embrace this path. I embrace it. We thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.